Good morning. Um, welcome to Hudson. Uh, thank you for coming today. I know there are other, are other uh, competing events taking place in the world. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's life. Um, we will be live streamed this morning, and then this conference will be put up on uh, Hudson's website. So those of you who would like to look at it again or review some of the details are invited to, welcome to. Um, I should point out I'm Seth Cropsey, a uh, senior fellow here at Hudson. And I'd like to welcome you to this morning's conference on the U.S.-Taiwan trade relationship. <clears throat> a little history, I think, would be useful as an introduction. Uh, I'm not keying this off the Broadway musical because I was aware of Alexander Hamilton before he became a hit on Broadway. Um, but he is applicable to our discussion this morning. Hamilton favored tariffs in the early days of the American Republic. The tariffs provided revenue to repay the money that the U.S. had borrowed to retire the costs of fighting the Revolutionary War, as well as to pay for, uh, provide revenues for the new government to operate. There, there would be no income tax until the Civil War. Um, and even then, it was an iffy proposition. <clears throat> Hamilton also favored tariffs as a means to encourage American industrialization. And as those of you who are familiar with American history know, uh, that was a large debate in the early days of the Republic, whether this would be an industrial republic or more or less an agricultural one, which was Jefferson's position um, and accounted for his opposition to tariffs. Tariffs experienced from then uh, uh, what can only be described as a checkered fate on the American political landscape. From 1798, in fact, until the 1930s, when President Hoover signed the uh, infamous Smoot-Hawley legislation, which raised tariffs. Those were economists um, generally acknowledge, uh, do acknowledge, uh, resulted in a decrease in trade during the 1930s as other nations followed suit. I think that World War II helped politicians understand that tariffs were foolish policy. Nearly three quarters of a century later, both U.S. presidential candidates have campaigned on opposition to the free trade that has largely enjoyed bipartisan American support since the general agreement on tariffs and trade went into effect in 1947. What changed? Well, trade is more globalized today than ever. The likelihood is that this trend will continue and will increase. 
Oxford Economics forecasts that global trade as a percentage of global GDP will increase from its 2000 level of, level of approximately 30% to nearly 40% in a single decade. The U.S.-Taiwan trade relationship is a good example of a strong and growing trade relationship. For decades, Taiwan has been in or close to the top dozen of America's trading partners in the value of combined exports and imports. <clears throat> Our speakers this morning will have more detail on this in their presentations but the central trade issue that faces trade relations between Taiwan and the U.S. is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It includes nations on both sides of the Pacific, including many states whose volume of trade falls well short of the value of U.S.-Taiwan trade. Taiwan should be included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership for economic, for diplomatic, and for security reasons. This important free trade agreement would increase prosperity for member states, and Taiwan's increased prosperity is in the United States' interest. Taiwan's prosperity anchors its free political institutions, helps to pay for its security, increases markets for American firms, and includes in it an international agreement with other nations whose economic prospects will be enhanced by Taiwan's membership. So with us today to say a bit more about this um, is a panel of distinguished experts. Uh, Lada Danielson, has been the Vice President at the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council since 2003, after serving as the Director of Corporate Affairs at the Council since 2000. Ms. Danielson studied Mandarin Chinese in Taipei and Beijing and received an international MBA in the Chinese track from the University of South Carolina. She also holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology from Georgia State. Next, Harry Kresa is a research associate at the Center for New American Security, where he works in the Asia-Pacific Security Program. Prior to joining the Center for <coughs> New American Strategy, Mr. Kresa worked as a policy analyst for the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. He served as a researcher with the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs at the National Defense University, a few blocks away, where he published a report on Chinese investment in the United States and its security implications. Mr. Kreiser was a Fulbright Fellow in Taiwan. He holds a master's degree in international relations from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton and a BA in political science and East Asian studies from Grinnell College in Iowa. Robert Wang is a senior policy advisor at Covington and Berlin LLC, um, which used to be in this building, right, Colin? Yes. Um, and uh, 
advises clients on matters involving China and Southeast Asia. Mr. Wang previously served uh, the U.S. State Department as a career foreign officer for more than 30 years. He was posted in Beijing and Shanghai, in Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, and as the desk officer for Cambodia. He served as the deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and the deputy director of the American Institute in Taiwan. Mr. Wang was also a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and adjunct professor at Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service. So uh, I will mention this now and then do so again before the question period that follows our speaker's remarks. Um, when you, if you have questions, and I expect that you will, um, would you please identify yourself uh, and your organization and tell us which speaker to which speaker your question is directed? Thank you very much, Ada. Thank you. Uh, if it's okay, I'll you, probably sit here. Either is fine. I'm very short, so um, standing at the podium can look even shorter. Um, uh, like Seth said, I uh, work for the U.S. Taiwan Business Council. Uh, it was established in 1976 um, with a mandate for supporting bilateral trade between the United States and Taiwan. So the organization is inherently pro-free trade. We're also pro-globalization. My boss, uh, Rupert Hammond Chambers, who's the president of the council, is from Scotland. Uh, I'm Swedish originally, so we have the U.S. Taiwan Business Council being run by a Scotsman and a Swede. If that's not uh, globalization, I'm not sure quite what would be. Um, except said, um, economists generally agree uh, that free trade is a net positive for the global economy. But as we've seen in the 2016 election, free trade is no longer seen uh, in general as a force for good. Um, the cause, obviously, uh, loss of manufacturing, loss of jobs. Uh, when China joined the WTO in 2001, it really changed the global uh, trade market by its sheer size and importance. And we're seeing some industrial hollowing out. Um, that's a stimulus, I think, for declining support of, of free trade. So what are the benefits, then, of free trade? We can, we can kind of talk about the general uh, benefits. Wider access to goods at lower prices. Uh, it promotes innovation, promotes competition, uh, and more dynamic business environment, technology transfer and talent transfer between countries. It promotes market expansion, market growth, um, and more opportunities for foreign direct investment. For the United States, I think as well, one of the things that we've seen um, as a benefit of free trade is the dissemination of uh, democratic values, which is something that the United States uh, is very keen on. So on the macro level, um, maybe free trade um, is, is seen as good, but on an individual level, I think we have seen uh, a lot of this, which is it can be very disruptive. Benefits are hard to see. Um, they tend to be diffuse. Uh, it's more of a long-term benefit. 
Uh, and we can, quant we can quantify that with statistics, obviously, but uh, it's not necessarily easy for an individual person to see and to feel the benefits of free trade, perhaps um, with the exception of the wider access to goods at lower prices, but that's something, you know, I think uh, people don't necessarily uh, take as, a, as something that's good uh, about free trade. Um, we win as consumers, but the negative consequences, such as closing of factories, uh, is a very tangible uh, negative consequence. So I think that's something that we're seeing um, in the discussion around free trade in the U.S. today. One of the things that we've heard during the election uh, season has been bring back manufacturing, right? Bring back manufacturing to the United States. Uh, that's the complexity of the global supply chain kind of makes this a very difficult proposition. So think about your smartphone. You have a chip in your smartphone. It's designed in California. It's produced in Korea. It's packaged and tested in Taiwan and then sent to China for uh, assembly with other products and then shipped back to the United States as a final product. Now, this is really um, dependent on the free movement of goods between the uh, countries. And uh, it would be very difficult and very pricey to bring it back and, and do manufacturing in one place and recreating that. And even if we manage to bring factories back, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll bring the jobs back because automation has really changed the face of manufacturing. And so even with, um, with the factories back in the United States, having uh, less people needed for the same kinds of work would mean that we wouldn't get the jobs back into us. So I think this is a kind of a an interesting way of looking at what, how do we, how would we bring back the manufacturing? Um, and then I wanted to call, talk a little bit about where Taiwan sits in the global trade scheme. Where's, where does Taiwan fit in? Taiwan is the 22nd largest economy uh, by GDP in the world, according to the IMF. It's the ninth largest trading partner from the US, um, and that was numbers from 2015. It's a huge player in the global technology supply chain. And it has an economy that's basically built on trade. Um, the current administration of Tsai Ing-wen, uh, the president of Taiwan, is trying to affect some industrial restructuring that will kind of move it away from uh, such an export dependence. But it is still one of the world's most export-reliant uh, economies with about 70% of GDP going towards exports. Um, but yet, Taiwan is largely absent from the discussion of free trade deals, not just in Asia, but in, in, in generally globally. And that's despite the fact that there's bipartisan support within Taiwan for uh, increased free trade. So why is that? I'm sure we'll hear more about this, and most people in this uh, room probably know this, but there's really one answer, and that's China. Uh, China is it's, it's primarily a political issue. Um, China likes to uh, try to limit Taiwan's international space across the board, and this is one more example of that. Um, in addition to that, trade deals tend to be negotiated and signed on a state-to-state -state basis. And so basically, if you signed a trade deal with Taiwan, it would imply uh, some sort of recognition of Taiwan's sovereignty, which is a red line for China as well. So China basically uses its economic and political clout to bully other countries into not dealing with Taiwan when it comes to trade and trying to exclude Taiwan. And yet, um, 
Taiwan has been able to do some other, you know, they have some trade deals. Um, they do some small piecemeal trade deal related deals with individual companies, so uh, countries. So customs agreement with Germany, for example, or um, agricultural deals with Indonesia and with India. But it also has seven, and I'm going to call this seven actual FTAs or FTA-like agreements. So Republic of Panama, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador and Honduras, which I'm counting as one. And then, um, of course, we have the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement with China, the ECFA, which was signed in 2010. And then the two that are really most relevant to the discussion on the TPP is New Zealand and Singapore, both signed in 2013. Now, the first four on this list um, are South American countries that also are on the list of the 22 countries that recognize Taiwan as a diplomatic entity. They actually have uh, official relations with Taiwan. And so these are the types of deals that we would expect Taiwan to sign. Uh, it also accounts for about only together 1.5% uh, of Taiwan's overall trade in 2015. So I'm going to put those sort of aside for now. <clears throat> um, then we have the ECFA, which is also a special case. China is the number one trading partner of Taiwan, uh, has been since 20, uh, 2015. And cross-strait trade and investment uh, is a huge part of Taiwan's economy. Closer trade ties across the strait um, uh, has been a means, basically, for, for China to bring uh, about their ultimate goal, which is uh, unification with Taiwan. So it's a political deal, not necessarily an economic deal. It's probably good for Taiwan, although people will uh, disagree with me on that, I think. But it, for, from the Taiwan side, it was a good deal to sign. And from the Chinese side, it was more of an economic, uh, more of a political deal than an economic deal. So that then brings us to the two most recent ones, Singapore and New Zealand. Um, why did China not then protest these two deals? Well, China already has trade deals with both New Zealand and Singapore. Uh, and so if you're thinking of, of China trying to bring Taiwan into their own economic sphere, it kind of plays into that narrative as well. In addition to that, um, I think it was probably a goodwill gesture towards the Ma government. The President Ma, uh, who's the previous president of Taiwan, had been very sort of pro-China in their, in their policies. So it might have been a goodwill gesture towards his government. But that said, it wasn't it wasn't easy to, to do these deals. So they needed to have some flexibility with the partners to uh, deal with this sovereignty issue of Taiwan. Uh, and they did that in, in three ways. So they used the WTO name for Taiwan in these agreements. Um, makes for very, very clunky names. So the New Zealand one, for example, is called the Agreement Between New Zealand and the Separate Customs Territories of Taiwan, Penghu, Kinmen, and Matsu on Economic Cooperation. A very clunky name, but it all allowing uh, them to sort of sidestep the sovereignty issue by using the WTO name that China has already agreed to. Secondly, they also didn't sign these agreements by government officials. They were actually signed by uh, trade associations that were then sort of approved uh, at the end by, by Taiwan's uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs as well as on the other side. So it wasn't signed by a government official. And then finally, they used English for these agreements as the official language. Normally, Taiwan would sign agreements using uh, Chinese as the, the 
the, the primary language, but they used English in these agreements to make sure that uh, wording, um, which were very particular about sovereignty issues, uh, was maintained. Um, and then we look at what benefits have come of these two agreements. Uh, of course, 2003 to 2016 isn't that long of a time, but we can say a couple of things. So Taiwan exports to New Zealand grew 32% between 2003 and uh, 2015, or sorry, 2013 and 2015. Um, Taiwan is now the third largest beef market for New Zealand behind the US and China. It is the seventh largest export market for New Zealand. It was 10th uh, in 2013. For New Zealand, uh, Taiwan as a market for horticulture and dairy products has really taken off. Uh, apples in particular, uh, if you look at apples sales from, from uh, New Zealand to Taiwan, it's risen 200% since the tariffs were removed. Uh, for cherries, it's 150%. Uh, and so that's a huge difference for, uh, for some of the uh, New Zealand companies that do that sort of export. Looking at Singapore, Singapore is a little different. It's difficult to find some numbers for that because there was already so much trade between Taiwan and Singapore. But if you look at exports to Singapore from Taiwan, they grew about 13% between 2013 and 2015. And the first year of the agreement, Singapore investments in Taiwan grew 86%, whereas Taiwan investments in Singapore grew by 13%, which is still fairly substantial numbers. So I think uh, with that, I'm going to say thank you so much. Thank you. Morning. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this uh, very important event and uh, the honor to be able to uh, speak alongside this great panel. Uh, I wanted to take a moment this morning to talk about What's uh, really going, what, what is going for U.S.-Taiwan trade? And then, more importantly, what's still holding it back? Uh, there we go. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Taiwan is a very export-driven economy at the moment. A lot of those exports are advanced manufacturing. And in advanced manufacturing, uh, the United States is buying what Taiwan is selling. Uh, that's contributed over the last many years to Taiwan, really punching above its weight in its relationship with the United States. As you can see here, uh, Taiwan, as of last year, was the United States' uh, ninth largest trading partner. And that puts it just a smidge below France and, uh, and uh, significantly above India, which is a country in orders of magnitude uh, larger than the economy of Taiwan. So Taiwan is really, uh, is really playing to its comparative advantages in its uh, trade relationship with the United States. Now, one of the reasons why Taiwan has uh, that really going for us, going for it, is that uh, it's a very good business climate in Taiwan. This has resulted in, uh, over the last few decades, a really uh, vibrant uh, commercial environment uh, in the island economy. And uh, it is thought of as one of the best places to start and, uh, and build a business in the world. Uh, it's uh, incorporation procedures are pretty good, ranked at around 19th in the world. 
Uh, but getting access to critical infrastructure is also very important, which is uh, perhaps why manufacturing has really uh, surged to the lead in many export and many of the export-driven industries in Taiwan. Uh, it's super easy to get access to electricity and other utilities, and con construction and permitting is also very easy in Taiwan, uh, which many uh, Washington, D.C. developers would probably feel some uh, jealousy for. Uh, Yet, with all of this going for it, uh, it is difficult for Taiwan to take uh, these advantages abroad. Uh, there are significant procedural and regulatory barriers that put downward pressure on Taiwanese trade, which make uh, many of Taiwan's accomplishments in the export market all the more impressive. Uh, in ease of trading across borders, Taiwan is ranked 68th in the world. Uh, which, uh, for an advanced manufacturing-oriented export market, is not great. That puts it between uh, Oman and Nepal. Uh, and for uh, comparison's sake, many Taiwanese, uh, many Taiwanese researchers and officials in their own trade agency like to try and compare themselves with South Korea. Uh, uh, a demographically uh, and industrially analogous uh, economy, sort of, uh, but in uh, insofar as it is a useful, useful analogy, South Korea is ranked 32nd uh, in the world for moving those goods across borders. So what are uh, those barriers specifically? Now, generally, uh, as a lot of uh, folks in, in, in uh, free trade research and trade liberalization will point out, globally, tariffs have generally gotten pretty low. Um, there are significant exceptions. Uh, Lana mentioned uh, agriculture as being one of the big ones out there. There's still lots of protectionist inclinations toward agriculture. But generally, uh, global tariffs are getting pretty low. And so what remains, what's adding that friction still to cross-border trade are non-tariff barriers. And those are uh, small procedural regulatory uh, uh, sorts of barriers that when put together, uh, the differences between them around the world amount to death by a thousand cuts. Uh, now, lots of them are frequently very benign, uh, such as labeling requirements. Uh, but in Taiwan, labeling requirements uh, can be significantly different from other countries. And so if you're a relatively small business uh, trying to operate in multiple countries, you know all the things that you need to put on your product. But if they're significantly different units of measurement or uh, requirements for how to present those, you need to create a whole separate uh, path of production for uh, your products going out of Taiwan or into Taiwan. Uh, there's also uh, significant uh, financial form differences. The, these are all like very banal sorts of issues. Like when in the process do you submit this permit or that application? But if they're very different from the other countries you're operating in, it can create a significant amount of friction. And indeed, these don't have uh, an underpinning in economic theory. These are technical. They're regulatory. They're procedural. Uh, when I was on the Joint Economic Committee, we did a little bit of analysis on uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But there wasn't really a lot that we could offer because uh, modern trade agreements are frequently focused on those procedural and technical barriers rather than 
tariffs or uh, broad economic interest-related uh, sorts of uh, uh, policy tools. Now, underneath these kinds of technical barriers, you have things that are outwardly parochial. Uh, rather than just uh, formally different, they are uh, barriers that are clearly set up to uh, protect local interests in those uh, kinds of uh, disruptive individual uh, uh, examples that Lana mentioned. Uh, now, in Taiwan in particular, uh, there are uh, especially big problems with professional licensing. Uh, if you are trying to set up a, a small business in Taiwan in a professionally licensed uh, fashion, it could be uh, being a, a hairdresser to being a psychiatrist, uh, Taiwan will sometimes throw up significant barriers and procedures for those occupational licensing uh, requirements that are very different from other countries uh, that are peers to Taiwan or regional, depart from regional standards. Um, and uh, there are also, in the realm of, uh, of foreign direct investment, very particular requirements for foreign investors entering the region, particularly in industries such as pharmaceuticals and medical device construction. Now, uh, these are also paired with uh, somewhat sensationalist approaches to the introduction of foreign products. Uh, the, uh, Lana mentioned the, the agricultural issues at play, and I think that uh, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council would probably be able to convey some of the, uh, these anecdotes with more color than I could, but there are great examples of the U.S.-Taiwan uh, agricultural trade uh, relationship going off the rails over uh, U.S. livestock. Uh, whether the uh, conditions they're raised in, the feed that they uh, consume, the uh, pharmaceuticals they do or do not consume uh, throughout the process of their uh, of their raising, has contributed to frequently um, evidence-free debates in Taiwan and Taiwanese uh, uh, trade discussions and policies. And that has uh, left a, a bad taste in many U.S. trade uh, negotiators' mouths, uh, particularly during the uh, closing years of the Ma administration, uh, when there was significant political capital expended just to uh, get the, the U.S. livestock uh, trade levels and, and barriers back up to similar levels to advanced manufacturing. So these, uh, these, these non-tariff barriers, these barriers that are less around economic theory and more on procedural, formal uh, hurdles, uh, are indeed the final frontier of uh, free trade agreements. And that's what agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership are really focusing on. Uh, indeed, that's why TPP, which has been criticized for being X hundreds of pages long, are frequently so complex is because they are charged with harmonizing all of these very disparate regulatory environments. And frequently, they're regulating many of the same issues, trying to prevent many of the same problems, but approaching it from such different directions that it's uh, exceedingly complicated to try and create a common marketplace. And that's why the uh, Taiwanese government uh, has tried to 
uh, get the jump on, uh, on this difficult process. Should TPP survive and should it eventually uh, come into effect, uh, Taiwan wants to be ready. Uh, they uh, have uh, set up an office of the, uh, I believe it's the, liberal, the liberalization office that's going to be headed by uh, Deng Chensheng, or John Deng, as, uh, who's recently been appointed as the head trade representative for Taiwan. They want to be ready should TPP succeed and there be a second round of negotiations that they'll be able to engage in accession talks without undue friction. Uh, the, one of the key rep responsibilities of John Dung's new office is going to be assessing uh, where Taiwan needs to be <coughs> and specifically uh, conducting a gap analysis over the coming years to create a specific list of policy recommendations for the executive yuan uh, and for the LY to consider uh, for harmonizing ahead of uh, any sort of TPP talks that may or may not happen. And uh, I think one of the most important steps in that process will be finding a, uh, a safe space uh, to bilaterally explore those reforms. And the United States is probably positioned to be one of those, uh, those best partners. They're a uh, country that wants to see Taiwan succeed, both for historical reasons, for, uh, for political affinity, but also, of course, strategic reasons. Uh, the United States wants to see Taiwan succeed as a, a liberal democracy, but also as uh, a, a source of non-Chinese economic heft and development in the region. And uh, the United States also will probably have uh, an extra amount of patience for the political uh, rough and tumble required to go through that trade liberalization process. So. Uh, I think that the U.S.-Taiwan trade relationship, it's already a very strong one, and if we're looking for a mission uh, for it in the future, it should be to help try and uh, pave the way for uh, potential TPP succession or other, uh, other Taiwanese trade relationships throughout the region by helping them uh, smooth out these non-tariff trade barriers. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. Okay, uh, thank you. I'm going to speak sitting down, not for the reason that Lata mentioned, but because uh, I'm old. <laughs> so it makes, I'm more comfortable sitting down talking. Uh, and uh, as the last speaker, I'm going to try to uh, provide some remarks that would hopefully tie things up a little bit in terms of uh, my reactions uh, and comments on some of the uh, presentations made. And also, I will try to focus, uh, given my background, a little bit more on the policy side in terms of the U.S. government, so to sort of bring things together a little bit uh, towards the end. Uh, first thing I would say is, in response a little bit to the general remarks about free trade, um, and uh, so on. I think the, the key thing about the TPP that a lot of people, I think we, I think the government does try to underscore this, but a lot of people still miss. It's not just about tariffs because uh, tariffs are already relatively low in Asia. It's like average maybe 5% or so uh, from a study in APEC. So that's not a big issue in terms of tariffs itself. 
although agricultural access is an issue to Japan, and that will, of course, uh, encourage Japan to open up its markets. The key thing about the TPP that a lot of American electorate uh, voters don't really understand is that it underscores the importance of rules-based trading. That's the key point. You have 30 chapters of the TPP and a very long document that a lot of which really underlines the disciplines of trading in a rules-based system, which is for labor, for environment, for state-owned enterprises. How do we actually put together a trading system that underlies the essentially rules by which we trade in a fair way? So for Americans, actually, it's actually quite an advantage because it says you cannot simply hire um, labor in uh, Vietnam or, or elsewhere, Malaysia, at lower costs in terms of non-minimal uh, sort of wages. Or you cannot simply do things in terms of trading that destroys the environment. Or you cannot simply subsidize state-owned enterprises that the U.S. has none of, to speak of, whereas Malaysia, others do have state-owned enterprises. So it's, it's actually an advantage for the United States in that sense to promote fairer and rules-based trade. So I think that's a really key point uh, that I think uh, hopefully whether we actually get TPP passed or not, ratified or not, we try to emphasize to the voters in the United States and other developed economies. And I think in the long term, this rules-based facet of TPP is extremely important uh, for future free trade agreements, multilateral or bilateral. The second point I'd make is just that uh, I think both speakers have already talked about this, so I won't elaborate on it, but if you look at Taiwan's economic status around the world, uh, you know, about 20th largest economy, modern IT sophisticated economy, uh, ninth or 10th largest trading partner of the United States, in almost all aspects, uh, it's a no-brainer that Taiwan should be part of regional FTAs. Whether it's TPP or RCEP, I mean, where in the world would be that such an economy that is so over 23 million people with this vital link in our global value chain and global supply chain in terms of IT, technology, etc., where in the world would it be left out of these regional uh, trade agreements? So it's a no-brainer that it should be in it, and as uh, pointed out by Henry and Lada, basically, it's essentially the China factor. Uh, they're not invited to PPP, probably because of the China factor, the fear that somehow China would object to it. For example, in the WTO, which I'm old enough to remember when I was in Beijing, uh, when, it, when China and Taiwan entered, we spent 15 years negotiating the entry of China into WTO. But one of the issues there was, well, how do we do Taiwan and China together? So at the end, after a lot of machinations and negotiations, we had essentially in 2001, China entered first, then Taiwan entered the next day. It's like, you know, all of this over this issue. And so obviously, clearly when we look at the TPP, uh, a lot of countries who are members, the 12, and others uh, are thinking, well, what about China? Would China object to the fact that, T that Taiwan would enter TPP first 
and not China, and would, would we need to have some sort of a sequencing? So obviously that, I think, is a major factor in uh, Taiwan having problems entering the TPP or being invited to. And then, of course, the other issue is even if the United States and others were to support Taiwan's entry, uh, the question is you still have Malaysia, you have others. Would China put pressure on some of the other members? So China does have a role even in this respect, not to mention RCEPT. Uh, and so on. So clearly, I think it's a no-brainer that it should be. China is a major factor. I think that uh, that everybody understands uh, makes it very difficult for Taiwan to enter. And I would point out also that it's a little ironic too that this would be the case that China would be the factor, because if you go all the way back, especially to June fourth, Tiananmen, and before. When a lot of Western investors and, and business, businesses sort of were hesitant to invest in China or pulled away, etc., Taiwan and Hong Kong were the ones who drove China's growth. So it's a little ironic that Taiwan, in terms of its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis mainland China, was a major factor in China's economic development to the state it is today. And for now, for China to be coming around and essentially blocking and making it more difficult for Taiwan to uh, diversify uh, and so on is ironic. Um, the question then is, you know, what should the United States uh, policy be? Since I'm no longer with the government, I can say a few more things than I normally would. Um, and I would say clearly it's already been mentioned. I think it is absolutely in the interest of the United States to support Taiwan's uh, joining the TPP. And if the TPP does not move ahead, as perhaps now we see is more difficult, then it's clearly in the interest of the United States to begin a bilateral investment agreement process with Taiwan, especially as the United States is already and has been negotiating a BIT, a bilateral investment treaty with China, not to do one with Taiwan while you're doing one with China, is an extremely wrong, poor signal, especially if we are, in fact, supportive of Taiwan's diversification and economic development. So it, it seems to me that uh, if the United States does not move more strongly to include Taiwan in regional trade agreements or in a bilateral trade agreement, et cetera, or investment agreement, then, uh, then I think it will be seen by people in the region, uh, other countries in the region, essentially as the United States being unwilling despite its rhetoric of supporting democracy, civil society, freedoms, our allies, etc., it will be seen by a lot of other countries in the region as essentially the shirking of a responsibility of the United States or the commitment of the United States to these values. So it's not for me to say it necessarily, but I think countries in the region will look at this example and say, is the United States really committed to these values, democratic freedoms, and so on. Okay. And also, I think 
just in my sort of um, offhanded way, you know, looking at the, the shifting sands of uh, international politics in the region today, you know, Philippines is an example. Uh, a lot of shifting sands in terms of the relationships between the United States and uh, countries around the region. Thailand had a coup uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and so a lot of people are questioning the so-called U.S. rebalance to Asia. What is U.S. commitment? So apart from the question of democratic values and freedoms and so on and so forth, I think the very sort of basis of the rebalance, especially if, president, if Secretary Clinton becomes president, because she basically had a major hand in starting the concept of the rebalance. So the question is, if we do not essentially come in and support the inclusion of Taiwan into the regional framework, especially TPP, then it brings to the question what U.S. commitment there is to the region. I think Japan, Korea, not to mention the Philippines, Thailand, and others, ASEAN as a whole, will begin to question precisely what the U.S. commitment is. So I think this goes beyond economic issues. Yes, it's our ninth largest trading partner. It's a major link in the global value chain. But beyond the economic issues and the benefits to both sides, there's a very important strategic political element, I think, to this decision of what we do with regard to Taiwan and TPP or BIA. So, you know, obviously, logically, I would say that it's uh, – what, what can the U.S. do? I think, first of all, you, you, you have to come out straight and express a clear commitment to support Taiwan's bid in the second round to join the TPP once it's completed and ratified. And since that could be a long process, I think it's important for the United States to commence negotiation with Taiwan on the bilateral investment agreement and try to expand it. And of course, the agreement can be as big or small as you make it. But if, in fact, TPP does come in later on, as I mentioned earlier with a friend here uh, during breakfast, then you could always put the BIA negotiations into the TPP to some extent. And not fully, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of the mechanisms and the agreements that would be in the BIA in the investment agreement could be incorporated in some ways into a TPP. So I would say commence it uh, as soon as you can. And of course, it's already been going on, so I'm not saying it hasn't started, but you really have to invigorate this process, especially as we are now also following the same process with China on a bilateral investment treaty. And of course, finally, uh, to end on this, I think, uh, as Henry uh, talked about here in his slides, it is clearly very important for Taiwan to grab this uh, opportunity and respond, whether it's with non-tariff barriers, improving the investment environment, uh, or with agricultural issues, science-based, rules-based. It's extremely important for Taiwan because it is ultimately in its vital interest to be part of this global or this regional um, uh, process. So 
Taiwan has to energetically do that. And I would say, in some ways, Taiwan has to decide one way or the other. I know the politics. I lived in Taiwan. The politics is very difficult. I know. But this is a critical moment, I think, for Taiwan. It has to grab this opportunity, especially in the shifting sands of geopolitics in, in the region, to really decide to move ahead on this uh, economic uh, undertaking, whether it's BIA, TPP, or otherwise. And more or less, I would say, follow the Singapore model, which is what I, where I also served for about three years, which is open up. Improve your investment environment, open up, because this is the key to the survival of Taiwan. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Um, there'll be questions, but I want to start. Um, <clears throat> specifically, Bob, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank our entire panel for their very thoughtful um, and insightful remarks, extremely helpful. Um, what effect would uh, the initiation of a bilateral trade agreement with Taiwan have on Taiwan's prospects for entrance into the TPP? Well, um, not bilateral trade agreement, bilateral investment agreement is what mm -hmm. we're talking not, not so much trade agreement. Uh, but those of you who are really familiar with this, we've been working with Taiwan for many, many years, even when I was there, on a whole range of things we call building blocks. So all of it are building blocks, in, the, in my concept at least, towards the TPP. So it doesn't really have an effect directly or not, because TPP itself will require, I would imagine, realistically, a couple, three, four years. It's really hard to say, maybe sooner. So meanwhile, you're working on the building blocks of the TPP with the BIA, Bilateral Investment Agreement, with other building blocks on IPR, on other issues that will gradually make it easier in the end for Taiwan to enter, to join the TPP and, and complete an agreement because it would have done a lot of the things that are required anyway. So you build it gradually towards that and if Taiwan does then, is able to join the TPP in terms of negotiation, it'll be that much faster to get into the TPP. Well, that brings me to the second question, and then I'll open up the floor here. <laughs> I'm going to use my prerogative here as moderator. Um, and this is for all the panel. Uh, has the political environment in the United States on free trade changed over the past you know, few months, past year or so? And if it has, why has it? Why don't we start off with whoever wants to start off? Yes, is the answer. Uh, I think it doesn't, definitely has. Um, again, some, some of what I said in my presentation was, was that, you know, we're looking at investments and jobs, the tangible issues that, that you know, the electorate is seeing. Um, but I think the rhetoric, the, the constant news cycle, um, talking about trade. I mean, obviously the trade part has been sort of lost, I think, in the discussion on the election so far uh, in, the, in the most recent sort of year. But before that, um, trade was certainly, or anti-free anti trade was certainly something that was being discussed uh, on both sides. And um, I think Harry mentioned earlier, you know, it's interesting to see uh, where the Democrats are the more pro um, for pro-free trade, which is something that Republicans have done. Uh, you know, been there, there's 
their their position for such a long time. Um, I'm not sure exactly why it's changed, but I think there's some some parts of of the discussion that's uh, galvanized the anti free trade people um, in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right, and uh, I think that if the Trans-Pacific Partnership passes, it will be because of its significant national security import. It will be because uh, an agreement like that is being reframed as, uh, rather than a, a free trade uh, agreement, uh, another free trade agreement, it will be because of its unique uh, strategic uh, outlook on the world. Uh, if the the United States' response, and it's uh, a big part of the rebalance, is to try and bring more prosperity and more uh, capability for self-defense to many of its allies and partners throughout the Asia-Pacific, uh, particularly in the face of an increasingly assertive China, then the argument for TPP, for uh, more BIAs and bits with uh, Taiwan and other partners throughout the region, become, uh, the arguments become stronger. Uh, and while free trade uh, is perhaps going out of vogue as a, uh, an argument for policy, the uh, national security imperatives are still there. I'll offer a comment as well. I think the answer to that is, is extremely complicated and a lot of um, very smart people have written about it, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, Robert Reich, others. I think this, the society we're going into with globalization does leave a lot of people behind. There's no question. Uh, the West Virginia miner or others uh, who are not up on IT and in the new, new world. Elon Musk just had an, a little point about how the world one day will just have everything running even, even I had, I had actually a, a sort of a vision to be a truck driver when I was young, because I love driving in the highways. But now he's saying those will all be robotics, <laughs> so I can't be a truck driver anymore after I retired. So, but I mean, the whole point is that the whole confluence of all of these things do leave people behind, and the question is, for the first time, we have to deal with how do we address these issues of these people who are left behind. And it's hard to train people for the right jobs and do different things. You can't just move a miner from one place to the other and get them to do it. Uh, and it's not, not just miners, but manufacturers, others. And so I think we really have to struggle with this issue of how we actually take care of those. Uh, and I think one of the things I loved about APEC when I was working on APEC is the fact that we began looking at inclusive growth. Mm -hmm. You're not just you know, women empowerment, but also small and medium-sized enterprises, also how to train people with IT. And this is a really, really big task. And unfortunately, I don't think we've done enough of that. And if I recall correctly, and I could be corrected here, the so-called trade adjustment assistance that we've been at least providing initially has actually dropped over the last several years. So we're now no longer providing the necessary assistance to people who are being left behind to train them or to make them transition to another job. We've got to do all of that, and it's really quite complicated, but I think I can understand why a lot of people are worried about um, TPP and so on, and globalization in general. Thank you, Bob. All right, uh, I've, I've had my turn. So, the questions? Yes, there's a gentleman over here. 
uh, Russell Schell with the Global Taiwan Institute. And I just want to thank an excellent if you would address your question. Sure. Uh, the panel is actually, uh, the question is actually for the entire panel. Um, and uh, my question is actually a follow-up on your question, your first question, Seth, uh, and that is about the free trade agreements. And I know that, um, you know, uh, Bob Wong had distinguished between a BIT and an FTA. And so my question is, um, is that at its point where the TPP, uh, you know, as this title of this panel uh, indicates, has an uncertain future, and importance of trade between the United States and Taiwan as a as a strategic uh, balancing effect. Um, is it time to start considering alternatives? And I appreciate uh, Bob's uh, suggestion for the BIT and pursuing that. Why not an FTA? Um, so you know the, that I'm just going to lay it out there. Chorus: Korea and U.S. signed an FTA. Why not one with Taiwan? Well, I will say uh, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council um, has for many years worked on uh, trying to, to, to encourage people to, to consider an FTA with Taiwan. Uh, for a little while there in the early 2000s, we worked quite heavily on uh, this idea of an FTA. And there's tremendous amount of support in Congress uh, and among business people uh, for an FTA. But the policy issues surrounding China just really put it, stopped it in its tracks. Uh, and I think, you know, somebody, somebody used this, this analogy for arms sales with Taiwan, which was the salami, uh, <laughs> sort of the salami model, which basically means uh, taking off little tiny pieces. And you sort of mentioned this as building blocks, uh, it's little tiny slices of things, uh, and that all sort of builds towards something uh, greater. And I think that that's probably the path of least resistance. For Taiwan, when it comes to trade with the U.S. and with and global, is, is to try to do the small things, the easier parts, the sort of things that maybe China won't be uh, making a noise about, uh, and try to go at it that way. And that's a more, uh, I think, it's a more feasible way forward. I think there's a lot of um, there's been some speculative coverage over the last couple of uh, days about what the priorities of a potential uh, Clinton or Trump administration would be, and we know that uh, a Trump administration would uh, be hostile towards existing and potential trade agreements, right? Uh, but I think that. Uh, a lot of people think that uh, President Clinton would also uh, have, they would, she would not have new FTAs very high on her agenda. Uh, but I think that part of the reason for that is that, uh, as, as you were saying, Bob, that there needs to be a change in the narrative around uh, free trade agreements and the actual policy effect of those agreements to make sure that there's confidence that the gains from these agreements will be more widely shared. Uh, sure, it's, uh, it is widely accepted economic theory that these agreements uh, generally grow economies writ large, but uh, there isn't that confidence that uh, the U.S policy environment, make sure that those uh, gains are widely shared. What I would say is this, Russell, the, you know, the, um, obviously nowadays trade talks uh, are all focused on structures, you know, BIT, BIA, TPP, RCEP, TTIP, etc. And all those things are important because they put things together and you could obviously have a more structured way of approaching it. But you remember, uh, even before um, you know, any of these multilateral agreements were actually 
negotiated and completed, there was economic growth. The bottom line is you have to do things that attract the investment or do things that facilitate trade even without these actual agreements. So there are things that Singapore, for example, did since the 1960s that promoted uh, growth. China was not part of any real agreement except WTO until in 01, but even before that, it simply opened up its pilot zones, Shenzhen and so on and so forth, and attracted investment and so on. So although it is convenient to think of it in terms of structure and TPP and TTIP, there are things that Taiwan and any other, anybody else can do to grow even without these proper structures put into them. So the question for Taiwan, I think, and for other countries to think of is, yes, we'd like to be part of this or that, but can we do things that actually promote growth, in other words, the consequence, even without that, you know, the, the framework? Can we do things, open up uh, certain sectors? Uh, facilitate, like uh, Henry was saying, facilitate trade, take down the non-tariff barriers, do different things. You don't have to bargain and negotiate all the time. Just say, this is good for us, so we'll do it. And then, when the, and then the product, which is growth in trade, growth in investment, is the deliverable. So I understand that we want to think in terms of structure, but we, can, we should also think in terms of actual things you could do without these structures. And I think for Taiwan, especially important because of the difficulties of actually entering some of these structures. Other questions? Yes. Hi, my name is Barbara from ISOM Media Limited uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, my question is, if there is some specific special arrangement achieved between the U.S. and Taiwan to achieve this kind of uh, inclusive growth, uh, as uh, Mr. Robert Wong just mentioned, do you think it would be also applicable uh, for the future China-U.S. Uh, special agreement either through TPP or uh, BIT or whatever other uh, agreement. I think it's very important both, especially for America at this stage. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely. I think, uh, I think at this point when China looks at uh, the TPP and so on, it probably has a lot of hesitations about some of the chapters that may not be advantageous for China, for example, on SOEs, on state-owned enterprises, or other kinds of things. So there are certain things it doesn't like. But in the final analysis, I think uh, it, is it would be beneficial at some point in the future when China feels it's ready for China to be part of TPP and to promote this growth. Because in, as you know itself, in, in China, one of the rather ironic things is that in the development of China over the last 20, 30 years into a major economy around the world, the inequality has really grown. The non-inclusiveness has really grown. So it's important for China to be part of this rules-based system because it then allows China to enter a structure where it then has to focus on greater inclusive growth within China in terms of wages, environment, pollution. I lived in China for 10 years. And, you know, the, the, the pollution is a big issue. And so I think all of this is good for China to actually enter this system that calls attention to these issues. 
as well as promote sustainable growth. No, I think that's, we're both in agreement, yeah. Other questions? Yes, over here. Thank you. Uh, I'm Tim Huang from CS, a visiting fellow in CSIS. Uh, my question is about China factor that uh, the Peterson Institute published a report a few weeks ago suggesting that uh, Taiwan could consider joint TPP with Hong Kong, just like uh, Mr. Wang has mentioned, like uh, we did in joint WTO and IPAC. So do you think that this model will be a practical or good way to for Taiwan to do to to join TPP. I don't know that uh, as these these uh, you know new and novel kinds of structures have come up a couple times this morning, and as you said, I think that uh, trying to come up trying to create. Um, a new pairing, a new coupling, uh, figuring out where we can uh, sneak Taiwan, Taiwan in into these existing uh, structures, I think is not the uh, not the angle that we want to try to take. It's to try and uh, make the make the improvement the deliverable, the growth is the deliverable, as Bob said. That uh, we try and think of what's the outcome that we want. Uh, is that Taiwan's new? Taiwan has the new southbound uh, economic uh, investment policy, right? So, what is the the deliverable that we want in that? Is create a growth that is not necessarily uh, dependent fully on a cross-strait relationship, right? Hong Kong uh, might be a good uh, a good um, other source of gravity there, but it's still it's closer in that China orbit, right? So, I think that. That might be overcomplicating what we're trying to trying to achieve, which is creating the growth that we seek without coming up with new or complicating structures to do so. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's the, I think that uh, it's certainly interesting. But if we're trying to grow Taiwan, try to get integrated into the world, we should look at the put the put the uh, horse before the cart. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's also political, um, in, internal, domestic Taiwan um, issues uh, in this particular plan. And, you know, I think with the uh, the current administration of, of President Tsai Ing-wen, she has not uh, had a very good, uh, I guess, I guess, I wouldn't say track record, but, but you know, dealing with, with Hong Kong and, and China. And I think there's some complicating factors there uh, domestically within Taiwan on, on this kind of idea. I would say that uh, your, your question is obviously addresses the China factor and how that could be maybe resolved in some ways or addressed so that Taiwan can join. And um, there are probably a lot of different specific things that can be done that you can look at, options and so on. But I would probably respond with a more general point, which is that I do believe that it is in the interest of China to have Taiwan essentially be included in the regional trade environment. Because what, I know this is not necessarily what the way the Chinese would see it, but I think in the long term the key 
interests of China, obviously. Uh, it wants to have some reunification with Taiwan and some relationship that is, I think, from its perspective at least, a healthy one, politically and otherwise. In the end, what China lacks is soft power vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. The reason there is this problem with Taiwan is because people in Taiwan do not perceive the people, the government in China, as friends. Because they're constantly pressuring them, constantly marginalizing them, and so on and so forth. So if that is the key issue, if China were to be quenyang and say, okay, we, we, the interest of Taiwan is the interest of China. Taiwan's people's economic development and growth is in the interest of China, especially if you think they're Chinese to begin with. Then if you allow that to happen, in the short term, maybe you might lose a little bit of this or that, but in the long term, you gain in terms of the soft power that you need vis-a-vis -vis the people in Taiwan, which is ultimately, because it's a democracy, will ultimately decide the fate of Taiwan. So if China can look more further out and say, okay, what's good for Taiwan is good for China, then this is good for Taiwan to be part of TPP, then join, with or without Hong Kong. You don't need Hong Kong. <laughs> Just join. And Taiwan prospers, China prospers. There's a question here. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Abe from CSIS. I'd like to follow my, uh, the, the, the question from my colleague. So, uh, if the, so I also would like to ask about the China fact. So, if the, we follow the WTO case, so, which means uh, uh, Taiwan and China uh, will join TPP together, so, but in this case, so uh, should U.S. process China to join TPP first? And uh, I think it is it will take very long time because the TPP standard is too high to China. So, and uh, I'm afraid it is so it will uh, so. It, it, it recalls the Taiwan uh, cannot catch up the second negotiation. So, it, it, so it, if we follow the WTO case, it, as I am afraid it will uh, let Taiwan to be delayed to, t to join TPP. So, uh, is it, is it the, the best case for Taiwan to follow the WTO case? I don't think it's the best case for Taiwan, no. Um, the TPP in general is sort of our, the U.S. bulwark against China in, in, in the Asia-Pacific, and I think um, this model of having China join first and then Taiwan join I think is not probably workable, and it's not definitely not in the interests of Taiwan. Taiwan needs to move towards what is their goal, where the, the growth, um, What, like, like Bob said, you know, try to move towards what their goal is. Uh, and even if that means unilaterally making changes to its trade regime to, um, you know, to reduce the non-tariff barriers, that sort of thing, uh, if that is what it takes to sort of prepare to be part of the TPP, uh, that's really what Taiwan needs to do. And even if the TPP fails and it doesn't happen, for Taiwan to move ahead uh, to try to reach the standards that the TPP has set, 
will allow it then in the future to join other regional trade agreements, and it would be good for its economy in the short term as well. And I think that's something that the current administration understands, uh, and that that's you know, that the Thai administration understands, and that that's kind of what they're trying to do with the South, you know, go South policy and uh, and that sort of way. But I don't think that this model is is a good thing for Taiwan. U.S. policymakers have said that, in theory, China would be welcome to join TPP in the in the future, but uh, the requirements to for entry to TPP, the liberalization required to do so, are far off uh, for the Chinese economy. So it would you know be essentially saying that Taiwan can join at some point so far into the future as to be not helpful for its current political or economic calculus. And. You know, from my perspective, personally, I don't see TPP as directed against China. And if we, if we begin to see it in those terms, then it does make it seem like Taiwan, China, which, which goes first, et cetera, becomes, it becomes a more political issue. And I don't see it that way. I see it really as any economy, whether it's you know, Taiwan or anyone else, that can benefit TPP group by expanding it so you have more trade and you have more uh, mutual benefits should be able to join. And if China at some point decides that it wants to join this rules-based system, then uh, then I think it should be able to. Uh, and I think that should be the criteria to keep it more economic rather than political. So we don't have to worry about who joins first, who joins second, etc. I think WTO was 16, 17 years ago when they joined. Yes, 15, 16 years ago. So that's, I think, the past. I, I, I would hope that TPP and other, other multilateral agreements are primarily economic uh, tools or mechanisms to improve the prosperity of the region as a whole across the Pacific, too, including in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Yes, right here is a question back. My name is Tony Liao from Central News Agency, Taiwan. Uh, in the case um, Taiwan joined TPP in the future, and should United States kind of support more because it's a brand new organization, is about economy and trade. Uh, at the time, U.S. and Beijing and Washington talk all the time, should Washington stand tougher in this issue? when dealing with the Taiwan joint TPP. And, and we understand Beijing put a lot of pressure pressure on Malaysia or Vietnamese country. Um, should U.S. support more at the moment? Thank you. I didn't quite understand. I, I didn't, yeah. Could you repeat that just, uh, no, just quick? Uh, just the question itself, sorry. Uh, I just, just try to understand, should the U.S. stand tougher in front of China? At the time, they are negotiating a lot of issues, even including Taiwan joining TPP in the future. Mm -hmm. From a, a, a perspective of, of uh, somebody who's supportive of Taiwan's joining the TPP, uh, yes, we would like to see the U.S. stand tall against China on this particular issue. Um, whether it will or not, I think is is, is a question. Uh, we will see China probably, uh, like I said, I, bullying maybe is not quite the right word, but um, 
for Chile and Malaysia that doesn't have very much trade with Taiwan in any way, uh, they can probably be persuaded to, to sort of stand against this agreement. And with TPP, you need all 12 people to say yes, all 12 countries to say yes. Uh, whether China, uh, whether the U.S. will stand tall against China on this particular issue, I think is very much up in, in the air, and that's something that we hope that they would do, but um, I guess we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, I mean, I would hope the United States would take a principled position. In other words, not make it a political thing, but it's a principled position that, as we said very at the very beginning, Taiwan is the number 20, 22nd largest economy in the world, vital link in the global value chain. Many of things like my iPhone, et cetera, part of it is made in Taiwan. It's a whole, I mean, it is a, it, it's a natural to be part of a global supply chain and of, a, of multilateral agreements. So in principle, it should not be excluded. And I think the U.S. should take that position, that any country that is important to the region, to the world, economically, should be able to join these regional organizations as it wants to. The, uh, while there are many places in which the United States and China seem destined for uh, tenser relations in the coming years. So far, uh, the United States, the U.S.-Chinese relationship has benefited from a willingness by both sides to continue having multiple conversations at the same time. Uh, that they uh, both have uh, enough broadly similar interests that there is significant investment in making sure that it remains a productive relationship. And so while you'll see uh, tension and pressure uh, going both ways, uh, I expect that the United States will keep a, a principled stand on those uh, on those issues where it believes it should. Other questions? <clears throat> Please. Uh, uh, thank you for giving me the second chance to ask my question. So my second question is about uh, a very specific way for U.S. government to help Taiwan. So my question is, uh, it's open to all the panelists. So do you, do you think that U.S. government could provide a consulting platform for Taiwan to, to uh, facilitate Taiwan to consult with the TPP members to learn the experience, especially from Japan, from Vietnam, for to learn to acquire their experience joining TPP. Uh, uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce has uh, published a couple reports uh, on what they see as the biggest hurdles toward, uh, procedurally and, uh, and legally for Taiwan to join TPP. So I don't think that there's uh, a shortage of, of, exper of expertise and knowledge out there about what the path would look like. But I, uh, I think you're uh, right in that there could probably be a helpful channel for the informal hurdles uh, for how to talk to the other members of TPP that would have to consent to a session, especially those that have very similar economies to Taiwan. Just speaking as a, on the background from uh, APEC, uh, which again, I love that organization. Uh, and 
as you know, there's already been, for many years, talks about, quote, unquote, FTAP, Free Trade Area of the Asia Pacific. Uh, but uh, obviously, APEC is not the place to do anything, negotiate uh, these issues. But the one good thing that I think APEC is doing in this regard is actually now, by the end of this year in Peru, uh, they should produce a report on the free trade area of the Asia Pacific, which really is an examination of TPP, RCEP, and other kinds of regional agreements to see what they are. So it's a discussion, it's a study of what these agreements all do and how they might somehow be not merged, but uh, somehow, you know, how they support each other and how they, there's some duplication. They might want to not duplicate, et cetera. But so I would say for Taiwan, for others who are interested in, well, what is RCEP? What is TPP? And how, what can we do, et cetera, to actually get involved in the study? And Taiwan's Chinese Taipei is a member of uh, APEC. And so through this process to begin, and all the other ones, Malaysia, Vietnam are all members of APEC. So it's China, so is the United States, Mexico. So you could, all 12 members are members of APEC. So within that sort of forum, I think if anyone wants to know more about TPP or RCEP, they can do it within this forum and talk to each other and work with each other to understand more of that. So I think it's a good instrument or platform uh, to consult through, you might say, uh, and just to know, understand what it requires, what, what the requirements are and what the difficulties are. Uh, it's a perfect uh, platform for that, I think. Uh, uh, well, Taiwan um, should probably be talking to all 12 economies um, in the TPP. I think we have advocated for uh, a continued focus on the two largest ones, so the U.S. and, and Japan, and to talk to them about what it's going to take for Taiwan to join, uh, to try to get a better sense for that. And I think maybe not in, as official consultations or anything like that, but in, in various um, other more informal ways that they can really sound the U.S. out on what it will take for them, uh, as well as Japan, I think, which is um, you know, an important part as well. We have a question over here. Morning, my name is Colin Holzer. I'm with Duke University. My question concerns all the panelists. Um, we spoke a bit earlier about trying to communicate the benefits of trade on the home front. Why are we losing that argument? Why are we losing that conversation? Or are we not um, properly sharing the benefits of international trade? And then my second question concerns, to what extent are these jobs being lost through outsourcing by going overseas? And to what extent are they just lost through technology and technological improvements. Thank you. Well, I think the first question we've, we've, we've sort of answered a little bit already. You know, we're seeing, seeing some of the, uh, uh, the trade issues that are affecting people, people getting left behind. There's not enough trade adjustment assistance. The labor markets are not adjusting as fast as maybe uh, some people have thought and hoped uh, when the WTO um, when China joined the WTO. So I think, you know, we've talked about some of those things already. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Um, sharing the oh, sharing the benefits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the there's certainly some uh, outsourcing, um, that that's one of the reasons, I think. Uh, but I, I really do think, and like I, I said earlier, is that automation and the changes in, in factories 
is really uh, one of the driving forces. You know, electron, you know the technology has, has changed. You can run a factory um, with, with way fewer people than you used to. And so it's not just the outsourcing issue that's, that's the thing, but I, I, I just don't think that we've really sold the um, American electorate on the benefits of free trade. And I'm not sure that that's um, an issue with the government or just an issue with what the louder voices are. The people who are pro-trade might not, uh, you know, it's something that's happening already. It's not something that you talk about, whereas the anti-free trade people um, are tend to be very loud, and, and uh, I think that, that plays a role as well. I think there are, uh, there are two problems that uh, are contributing to the same sort of uh, in trend toward insularity, right? It's the uh, the issue of, of automation and, uh, uh, right, there's truly been some outsourcing, but I think there's been significant research suggesting that automation has really been the big uh, driver of the losses manufacturing jobs in the United States. Uh, and then, the, so that's, that's one problem, your kind of structural economic issues. And then you have, uh, on the other side, I think uh, uh, exacerbated by those structural economic issues, uh, I think many Americans don't, uh, uh, aren't part of the foreign policy conversation. Uh, I think that very, you know, traditionally foreign policy has happened in the halls of power of D.C. and New York, and it's a conversation that um, has enjoyed broad bipartisan support, perhaps in part because uh, it is largely an elite-driven conversation. And uh, I think this year, this, uh, this election season, uh, the amount of uh, of receptivity towards abandoning, alliance, abandoning alliances and uh, and turning away from the, the global market, I think, is troubling. Uh, in part because uh, we, uh, in like the policymaking world, have not properly uh, conveyed the narrative that supports the that demonstrates the importance of global engagement. So these are uh, these are two, I think, separate problems that are uh, each other exacerbating each other and creating this turn away from uh, global economic engagement and also hurting uh, global political engagement. Yeah, I think if you go to look at the commerce uh, websites and so on, I know that they constantly tout. How many export? How many sort of how much X is exported, and how many jobs it creates in the United States? So that's really a key function: the Export Now program under President Obama, and so on. And you will see, in fact, that it does create a lot of jobs in the United States, whether agricultural or otherwise, uh, in the U.S. And I think that message clearly needs to be uh, a little bit more uh, delivered, a little bit more, uh, I think, to the to the electorate uh, as a whole. But still, it does not affect the people who, who lose the job. So some may be relatively happy. Others will not be. And so it goes back to my, my previous comment, which is I think it's a fundamentally very difficult issue to resolve. Um, you have to change the entire structure, maybe taxation structure. Elon Musk was, was I guess Elon Musk, Musk was, uh, and others are now proposing something called universal income. Or something like that. I don't know. It's it's extremely complicated. To how do you, how do you create an economic structure that's inclusive and takes care of the people who are left behind, train them, etc., under this new technology and the new globalization? How do you do that? It's not going to be 
a matter of uh, four years or eight years. It's going to be a long time. But I do think you need to do it because you cannot move ahead and leave one quarter of your population behind, uh, et cetera, because that creates political instability like we're seeing now in this election. Uh, and it's created instability in other places, the Philippines, other, et cetera, Thailand, and will create problems in China. So eventually you have to address this issue to maintain political stability, which is necessary for economic growth. But I don't know how to do it at this point, except that I think structurally it does require major change. We have time for one, one last question here in the front row. Herb Rose, um, concerning China and uh, possibly sometime in the future when it might agree to meet the rules of the TPP, uh, and this might be some time in distant future. Uh, do you think that its current position with regard to filling in the sea and uh, developing bases um, to the consternation and objection of its neighbors would have some bearing on its entry into the TPP? I think yes. Um, it would. Um, this is obviously something, the East China Sea, South China Sea, is something that the rest of the Asia-Pacific is very much paying attention to. Um, and uh, yes, uh, people will be considering the things that it does now and um, in the future when it comes to joining the TPP. Exactly what form of what form that will take is very difficult, I think, to say at this point. Um, but my answer would be yes, it doesn't. It definitely uh, holds something. I, I don't think that people hold grudges. Uh, countries don't hold grudges like people do, but um, it definitely is something that, that people would take into account. The, uh, many countries in the, in the Asia Pacific region like to emphasize to the United States that uh, they don't want to have to choose between a political security relationship with us and the economic relationship with China. Uh, but uh, the more that China does things like that, uh, then the, the less stark that calculus is. My answer would be that, yes, it could have an effect, because countries actually hold grudges. <laughs> <laughs> or governments do it, let me put it this way. Uh, so I think, yes. But from my personal um, perspective, I don't look at the relationship with China or with any other country as a zero-sum game. So if China does something good, I think we should support it. If China does something that we think is not good, we should oppose it. So I don't see it as necessarily zero-sum. For example, China wants to develop infrastructure in different regions. If it does it in a good way, in a transparent way, protecting the environment and helping the infrastructure of Southeast Asia, then I think we should support it. Uh, not oppose it because it's building sands in somewhere in the, in the islands in the South China Sea or whatnot. So I, I tend to approach it from that perspective. And, uh, but I, unfortunately, I, not, or I'm not sure unfortunately, but in general though, it's not necessarily like that in reality, that people do connect things and, and uh, it becomes political, something economic becomes political, something positive, something negative becomes positive, whatever. 
uh, or some, sorry, something positive becomes negative because of the political considerations. So that's the reality of it, but I, I tend to not try not to do that. Well, I'd like to thank the, our panelists for excellent presentations and our audience for excellent questions. Um, some of the issues that have been raised today, um, we've discussed directly, all of us, all of you have discussed directly, and we've talked about rules-based system and what is in China's interest. And uh, unfortunately, uh, nations like individuals do not always act in their best interest. Um, and that has implications, um, as does the question of whether China participates in a rules-based system where Taiwan does and the United States does, that raises questions, I believe, about what United States policy should be in the future. And that is, I hope, not a cheesy way of encouraging you to come to our next conference in early December. Was it December 9th, 8th, 8th, um, which will look at uh, the results of the election that takes place tomorrow and its implications for the relationship between Taiwan and the United States. And with that, I'd like to close these proceedings and thank you all again very much.